which act they declare shall be inserted in express terms in any act of Parliament which shall be made for settling and ratifying any treaty of union and shall be declared to be an essential fundamental part thereof. Hence the, acts, the act of the English Parliament for the union of the two kingdoms contains the above act for securing the Church of England, which act, being sent down to Scotland, stands recorded among the acts of the last Scottish Parliament. Moreover, the last article of said union contains that all laws and statutes in either kingdom, so far as they are contrary to or inconsistent with the terms of these articles or any of them, shall from and after the union cease and become void which, as in the act of exemplification, was declared to be by the parliaments of both kingdoms. Thus this nation, by engrossing the English act, establishing prelacy, and all the superstitious ceremonies in the act of the Union Parliament, and by annulling all acts contrary to the United Settlement, have sealed, as far as men can do, the gravestones formerly laid upon the covenanted uniformity of the nations. To all which the Revolution Church, by consenting and practically approving this unhallowed union, have said, Amen. Though at first some of the members opposed and preached against it, yet afterward changed, and, if some historians may be credited by the influence of gold, were swayed to an approbation. This church's consent to the Union is evident, from their accepting of the Act of Security enacted by the Scots Parliament as the legal establishment and security of the Church of Scotland, and from the Assembly 1715, utterly rejecting a proposal to make a representation to the King that the incorporating union was a grievance to the Church of Scotland, though it ought still to be regarded as such by all the lovers of Reformation principles, because it is a disclaiming of our sworn duty to never endeavor the Reformation of England and Ireland. It is a consenting to the legal and unalterable establishment of, of an abjured prelacy in them, obliges the sovereigns of Great Britain to swear to the preservation of the prelatical constitution and idolatrous ceremonies of the Episcopal Church, and join in communion therewith, and therefore forever secludes all true Presbyterians from the supreme rule. This union establishes the civil lordly power of bishops, obliging the Church of Scotland to acknowledge them as their lawful magistrates and ministers, to pray for a blessing upon them in the exercise of their civil power, and is therefore a solemn ratification of anti-Christian Erastianism. It has formally rescinded and forever made void any act or acts in favor of a covenanted uniformity in religion that might be supposed to be enforced before this union. And therefore, while it stands, it is impossible there can be a revival of that blessed work which was once the glory of the nations of Scotland, England, and Ireland. Number two. The Presbytery testify against the sinful practice of imposing oaths upon the subjects contradictory to Presbyterian principles in general, and the oath of the covenants in particular, as the allegiance, and particularly the abjuration, all which oaths imposed by a British Parliament exclude our covenanted uniformity and homologate the United Constitution. But to prevent mistakes, let it be here observed that the Presbytery do not testify against any of these oaths out of the remotest regard to the spurious pretended right of a popish pretender to the throne and crown of these kingdoms. For they judge and declare that by the word of God and fundamental laws of the nations, he can have no right, title, or claim to be king of these covenant kingdoms, seeking, seeing by our covenants and laws, establishing the covenanted reformation, which are well founded on the divine law, all papists as well as prelatists are forever excluded from the throne of these, and especially of this land. 
so that it is utterly inconsistent with the principles maintained by this presbytery, constituted upon the footing of the covenanted Church of Scotland, and the oath of God they, with the nations, are under, ever to acknowledge and own the popish pretender, or any of that cursed race, as their king. But they testify against these oaths because they bind to the acknowledgement of the lawfulness of a prolatic Erastian constitution of civil government and homologate the incorporating union. In one article whereof, it is declared that these words, quote, this realm and the crown of this realm, etc., close quote, mentioned in the oaths, shall be understood of the crown and realm of Great Britain, etc., and that in that sense the said oaths shall be taken and subscribed, and particularly the oath of abjuration, which whosoever takes swears to maintain Erastian supremacy, prelacy, and English popish ceremonies. And so, at least, by native and necessary consequence, the swearing thereof is an abjuring of our sacred covenants. But that which puts it beyond all dispute, that the oath of abjuration, in the literal sense thereof, obliges to maintain the prolatic constitution of England, both in church and state, as by law established and secured by the Union Act, is the express words of that Act of Parliament by which this oath was imposed, and to which it expressly refers, viz., the act of further limitation, where it is said, quote, on which said acts of limitation and further limitation, the preservation of your majesty's royal person and government and the maintaining of the Church of England as by law established do under God entirely depend. To the intent, therefore, that these acts may be forever inviolably preserved, it is hereby enacted that magistrates and ministers shall take the following oath, close quote, namely of abjuration. The above act, then, declaring that said oath was directly intended for the support and establishment of the prelatic Church of England, it follows that this oath is a solemn abjuration of the covenanted reformation, as it is also expressly repugnant to Presbyterian principles. But though the above oath is so manifestly sinful, yet the ministers of this Church did neither faithfully warn others of the sin and danger thereof, nor faithfully, <coughs> faithfully oppose it, when imposed upon themselves. But agreeing that everyone should act therein as he thought proper, they who refused it may be reputed soci criminis, with a generality, who contrary to their professed principles did take and subscribe the same, and that, as says the oath, heartily and willingly, whereby they not only engage to maintain a prelatic government, prelacy, with all its popish ceremonies, but to maintain only a prelatic government, and to oppose all others, even though Presbyterian, in their accession to the throne. And this, by virtue of the sinful limitations and conditions wherewith the oath is clogged. And hereby these nominal Presbyterians discover that they are not possessed of a zeal for the establishment of the true Presbyterian cause and principles proportionable to that which the English discover for their will-worship and superstition. Three, the Presbytery testify against a sinful and almost boundless toleration, granted Anno 1712, a woeful fruit of the Union, by which toleration act not only those of the Episcopal Communion in Scotland have the protection of authority, but a wide door is cast open and ample pass given to all sects and heretics, popish recruisants and anti-Trinitarians some way accepted who are yet numerous in the nation to make whatever attacks they please upon the kingdom and interest of our glorious Redeemer in order to the advancement of their own and the devil's, 
and all with impunity. The foresaid act warrants the Episcopal clergy publicly to administer all ordinances and perform their worship after their own manner, with all the popish canons and ceremonies thereof, and obliges all magistrates to protect and assist them, while it destroys the hedge of church discipline against the scandalous and profane, and is therefore a settling and establishment of prelacy in Scotland, giving it a security little, if anything, inferior to that which the established church has. Again, by a clause in the Toleration Bill, the security given by former laws to Presbyterian Church government and discipline is undermined and taken away, at least rendered ineffectual, and made the subject of ridicule to the openly profane by the civil magistrates withdrawing his concurrence, inasmuch as it declares the civil pain of excommunication to be taken away, and that none are to be compelled to appear before church judicatories. There is nothing in religion of an indifferent nature. For whosoever saith Christ shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It must then be the most daring wickedness and affronting of the majesty of, of heaven in the highest manner for an earthly monarch to pretend to enact a toleration of religions and thereby give a liberty where the divine law has laid a restraint. It implies an exalting of himself, not only to an equality with, but to a state of superiority above the glory of God. Whatever principles are of divine authority require no toleration from man. It is wickedness to pretend to do it. Seeing whatever comes under the necessity of a toleration properly so-called falls at the same time under the notion of a crime. And no less wicked is it for a magistrate to protect by a promiscuous toleration all heretics, heresies, and errors. Yea, it is a manifest breach of trust and plain perverting the end of his office, seeing he is appointed to be entrusted with the concerns of God's glory as well as the interests of men. Experience has in every age taught that a toleration of all religions is the cutthroat and ruin of all true religion. It is the most effectual method that ever the policy of hell hatched to banish all true godliness out of the world. But however manifold the evils be that toleration is big with, this church, instead of opposing, seems to have complied therewith and to be of toleration principles which is evident not only from their receiving into communion the Scots curates of which above, but from their joining in communion with Mr. Whitfield, an English curate and member of that church and ringleader of the Methodists there, when he is in Scotland. Again, it is known that when the Scots gentlemen are set to, sent to attend the British Parliament or any time in England, they do many of them join in communion with the prelatic church, nay, are guilty of taking the sacramental test that is, taking the sacrament after their superstitious manner to qualify them for any public post. Yet this church receives them into the closest communion without requiring any satisfaction for these evils, whereby they act contrary to Christ's example in purging and keeping his house pure and contrary to the scripture. Revelation chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 20. Number four. In like manner, the Presbytery testify against the tyranny that has frequently appeared in the administration since the Revolution, both in church and state. The civil powers have discovered not a little of tyrannical and arbitrary power 
in imposing their laws, statutes, and injunctions upon the church, as in the instances of the particulars formerly noticed. But further, it has appeared in their fining and imprisoning persons, because, though endeavoring to live peaceably as far as possible with all men, they could not in conscience and in due regard to the covenanted cause own the lawfulness of their authority by swearing fidelity to the present Constitution. Again, in their dispensing with and counteracting the law of God in a variety of instances, thus, while without any divine warrant, the crime of theft is capitally punished, yet the grossest adulterers who are capitally punishable by the divine law pass with impunity and frequently reprieves and sometimes pardons, as in the case of Porteus, have been granted to murderers, expressly contrary to the law of God, which declares that whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Another astonishing and full evidence of the above charge is in the act repealing the penal statutes against witches, etc., 1785, whereas it is enacted, quote, that no prosecution, suit, or proceeding shall be carried on against any person or persons for witchcraft, sorcery, enchantment, or conjuration, close quote, etc. This act, in plain terms, flatly contradicts and opposes the law of God in the very letter thereof. See Leviticus 20, verse 6, verse 27, Deuteronomy 28, verses 10 through 12, Exodus 22, verse 18. Not only has the state, in these and other instances, as the imposing almost intolerable taxations upon the impoverished subjects, for supporting the grandeur of useless and wicked pensioners, and for carrying on wars, often not only sinful in respect to their rise and causes, but in their nature and tendency unprofitable to the nations, not only have they been guilty of this evil, but also the Revolution Church has exercised a most tyrannical government. As many of the constituent members of the Revolution Church had shown a persecuting, tyrannizing spirit against the faithful contenders for the truth in the matter of the public resolutions, so the same spirit has still continued since the Revolution and frequently exerted itself in a most arbitrary manner against all who have made any appearance for a covenanted work of reformation. Accordingly, soon after the Revolution, this Church raised some processes against Mr. John Hepburn, minister at Orr, under pretense of some irregularities but in reality for his making some appearance against their abounding defection and for a covenanted work of reformation, and continued their prosecution to suspension and deposition. And further, applied to the civil magistrate to apprehend said Mr. Hepburn, who accordingly was imprisoned in Edinburgh, and then, because of his preaching to the people out of a window, was carried to Stirling Castle and kept close prisoner there for a considerable time, as a book entitled Humble Pleadings fully discovers. They likewise exercised their tyranny against Messrs. Gilchrist and Dunsker and Taylor and Womfrey, whom they prosecuted not only deposition but even excommunication for no other reason but their bearing testimony against that ensnaring oath of abjuration and a number of other defections. Again, this church, still fond of suppressing the good old cause and owners thereof, framed and prosecuted a libel most unjustly, some even of themselves being judges, against Mr. John McMillan, minister in Balmaghi, for presenting in a regular manner a paper of real and acknowledged grievances. And because he would not resile from it, but continued to plead for a redress, was at last opposed. As also Mr. John McNeil, preacher, for the same reason, had his license taken from him. And by the authority of the assembly, both of them were prosecuted and censured, not for scandal, insufficiency, or negligence, error in doctrine, etc., 
but only on account of their pleading for the covenanted reformation of the Church of Scotland and maintaining a necessary testimony against the prevailing corruptions and defections of former and present times, as appears from their paper of grievances and joint declinature printed 1708. Nay, such was their mad zeal against Reformation principles that by the Act 15th of Assembly 1715 the Commission was not only empowered to censure all aforementioned persons, but also enjoined to apply to the civil magistrate for suppressing and punishing them. And accordingly, sundry of them were proclaimed rebels over public market crosses, only for their continued adherence to Reformation. And besides other instances, their magisterial and lordly power exercised over the flock of Christ in the violent intrusion of ministers into vacant churches over the belly of the people, and then excommunicating from sealing ordinances such as cannot in conscience submit to the ministry of these intruders. It's a most glaring one. While at the same time severe censures are inflicted upon such ministers as have the honesty to oppose these anti-Christian measures. Loud complaints have likewise been made against their arbitrary and tyrannical conduct with reference to Mr. Ebenezer Erskine and others with him designated by the name of the Associate Presbytery because of their remonstrating against and endeavoring to rectify some of the aforementioned evils in the Church, the justness of which grievances of complaints and complaints may be instructed from their own writings on that head. <clears throat> it must not be here omitted to remark that as this church is justly charged with tyranny in government, so she is equally guilty of partiality in discipline. Though all that discover any measure of faithfulness in the concern of Christ's glory are sure to meet with most severe treatment, yet the loose, profane, and erroneous have seldom any church censures put in execution against them. This church never made any suitable inquiry into the sinful compliances and sad defections of her members and office-bearers during the persecuting period, and that unfaithfulness in the exercise of church discipline is still copied after. How few, guilty of the most gross scandals, are censured, such as notorious drunkenness, blasphemy, cursing, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, uncleanness, especially among the rich, who are capable to give pecuniary mulks to free them from church censure. Thus, in conformity to the prolatical and anti-Christian example, setting to sale the censures of the church and dispensing with the laws of Christ for money. Nay, not only are such overlooked, but many guilty of these gross sins, together with oppression, neglectors of family worship, and the grossly ignorant, are without any public acknowledgment of these sins, admitted to the highest and most solemn ordinances, both sacraments. And this may be thought the less strange when persons chargeable with most of these sins are admitted and continued to be office-bearers in the house of God. Persons, and even teachers, maintaining most dreadful blasphemous errors connived at, patronized, or but slightly censured, and still kept in communion without any open renunciation of these heresies. Playhouses, the seminaries of vice and impiety erected in the principal cities of the nation, and stage players, commonly among the most abandoned of mankind, escape with impunity. Yea, this pagan entertainment of the stage is countenanced by the members and office-bearers of this church, and that to such a degree that one of the ministers thereof has commenced author of a most profane play called The Tragedy of Douglas, wherein immorality is promoted, and what is sacred exposed to ridicule. Oh, how astonishing 
that a minister in the once famous Church of Scotland should be guilty of such abominations and yet not immediately sentenced to bear the highest of all church censure. Number five. The Presbytery testify against this established church for unfaithfulness of doctrine, which will appear by a few instances, although before the Revolution the Lord Jesus was openly, as far as human laws could do, divested of his headship and sovereignty in and over his church. Although the divine right of Presbytery had been publicly and nationally exploded, derided, and denied, yet this church has never, by any formal act, declared that our Lord Jesus Christ is sole king, the alone supreme head of his church, nor in the same manner declared that the Presbyterian form of church government is of divine right and condemned all other forms as contrary to the word. Such a testimony was the more necessary when the civil powers have arrogated Christ's power to themselves and continue to exercise it over his church. And the want of it is an evidence of the church's unsoundness in the doctrine of government and of Christ's kingly office. This church's error in doctrine further appears from their condemnation of a book entitled The Marrow of Modern Divinity as containing gross antimonian errors, whereby they condemn many great gospel truths as errors, particularly that believers are altogether set free from the law as a covenant of works, both from its commanding and condemning power, together with others, whereby they have made way for and encouraged that legal, moral way of haranguing, exclusive of Christ and his most perfect righteousness, which is so common and frequent in all parts of the land, and opened a door for introducing Baxterian principles, which in consequence hereof have since very much prevailed. Another evidence of this church's unsoundness and unfaithfulness in doctrine is their excessive, sinful lenity toward the most gross heretics. Notwithstanding Arminian and Pelagian heresies and Arian blasphemies have been publicly taught. And although true godliness and effectual working of the spirit and the souls of men have been publicly exposed as enthusiasm and many other damnable heresies vented, yet this church has never lifted up the faithful standard of a judicial testimony in condemnation of these heresies and in vindication of the precious truths of Christ, Christ thereby impugned. And when the ministers and members of this church have been processed before her assemblies and convicted of maintaining many gross errors, no adequate censure has been inflicted. This particularly appears in the case of Mr. Simpson, professor of divinity in the College of Glasgow, when processed before the judicatories of this church in the years 1715 and 1716 for several gross errors, such as, quote, that regard to our own happiness in the enjoyment of God ought to be our chief motive in serving Him, and that our glorifying of God is subordinate to it, that Adam was not our federal head, unquote, and other Arminian, Socinian, and Pelagian heresies, all to be found in his answers to Mr. Webster's libel given in, libel given in against him and clearly proven, yet was he dismissed with a very gentle admonition, which sinful Lenity encouraged him not only to persist in the same errors, errors, but also to the venting of Arian heresies among his students. Accordingly, he was again arraigned before the assembly's bar in the year 1727, 1728, 1729, 
when it was found clearly proven that he had denied the necessary existence of our Lord Jesus Christ and the numerical oneness of the three persons of the Trinity in substance and essence with other damnable tenets. Yet when these articles, whereby he had attempted to depose the Son of God from his supreme deity, were proven, and when, as one of the members of this church in his protest against the assembly sentence said, the Son of God, as it were, appearing at the bar of that assembly, craving justice against one who had derogated from his essential glory and blasphemed his name, at which every knee should bow. Yet such was the corruption and unfaithfulness of this church that the blasphemer was dismissed without any adequate censure passed upon him, and still continued in the character of a minister and member of this church. Again, when Mr. Campbell, professor of church history at St. Andrews, was processed before the judicatories of this church for maintaining a scheme of dangerous and most pernicious principles, which he published to the world, having a manifest tendency to subvert revealed religion and expose the exercise of serious godliness under the notion of enthusiasm, to advance self-love as the leading principle and motive in all human actions whatever, and to destroy the self-sufficiency of God, making him a debtor to his creatures, yet, though these, with a number of God-dishonoring, creature-exalting, and soul-ruining errors, were notorious from his books and were defended by him, the heretic, instead of being duly censured, was countenanced and caressed whereby this church has given a most deep wound to some of the most important truths of the Christian religion and becomes chargeable with the guilt of all the errors maintained by that erroneous professor. A third instance of this church's unfaithfulness appears in the case of Mr. Glass and others who openly vented by preaching and printing independent schemes of church government with some new improvements attacked our confession of faith and covenants, unhinging all order and government in the church, pulling up the hedge of discipline to introduce all errors in doctrine and corruption in worship. And at last, openly renounced presbytery, name and thing, denying that there is any warrant for national churches under the New Testament, and asserted that our martyrs who suffered for adhering to the covenanted reformation were so far in a delusion with many other sectarian tenets, for which the church at first suspended and then deposed them, some of them. But afterward, as if this church repented of doing so much in favor of presbytery, they were reponed to the great danger of the church, for having discovered no remorse for their errors, they immediately employed all their parts to shake presbytery by setting up independent churches and ordaining several mechanics to be their ministers. And nothing done by the church for putting a stop to these errors and for reviving and vindicating the precious truths they had impugned. Likewise, when Mr. Wishart was staged for error, vented by him in some of his sermons, with respect to the influence of arguments taken from the awe of future rewards and punishments and other erroneous notions, he was dismissed without any renunciation of his heterodox principles and assolized by the judicaries of this church and his easy absolutions 
encouraged error, so no sooner was he assolized, but he had the assurance to recommend erroneous books, such as Dr. Witchcott's sermons, to his students. It is indeed no small evidence in the unsoundness of this church when the heads of colleges are suffered, impugned, to recommend such books for students and probationers to form upon. Again, when Professor Leachman was quarreled with for his deistical sermon on prayer by the Presbytery of Glasgow and afterward carried before the assembly, yet, although in all his sermons he presents God as the object of prayer, merely as our Creator, without any relation to Christ as Mediator, but recommends to his, his hearers as the only acceptable disposition of mind an assured confidence in the goodness and mercy of their Creator, not only has that Christless sermon been very much extolled, but the author dismissed from the assembly's bar in such a manner as if thereby he had merited their applause. From all which it sufficiently appears that this church is unsound and unfaithful in point of doctrine, especially if it is considered that she has been frequently addressed by representations declaring the necessity of an assertatory act, affirming and ascertaining the precious truths injured and impugned, and that publicly by the above-mentioned errors, and that a solemn warning should be omitted, discovering the evil and danger of them. Yet that necessary duty has still been contemned and disregarded. The great truths of God have for many years lain wounded and bleeding in our streets, trampled upon by their open and daring enemies. While this church has entirely forgotten and slighted the divine command to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. And though the Westminster Confession of Faith continues to be subscribed by entrance into the ministry, the covenants owned by the Reformed Church of Scotland as a part of her confession being abstracted from the confession of this present church. Yet, how little of that system and order of doctrine is now taught? The generality, having just as much of Christ and the doctrines of his cross in most of their discourses as is to be found in the writings of Plato and Seneca and the rest of the pagan moralists. So that this church appears orthodox in little or no other sense than the Church of England is so, by subscribing the 39 Articles, which are Calvinistical in the doctrinal parts, while yet the Arminian system of doctrine is generally received and taught by her clergy. Add to what is above that this Church maintains no suitable testimony against sins of all sorts in persons of all stations. Neither emits faithful warnings anent the snares and dangers of the nation, nor full and free declarations of present duty, like faithful watchmen did in former times. But such faithfulness in God's matters is not now, alas, to be expected. Seeing this church has made a formal concert or mutual pact, binding up one another from preaching against and applying their doctrines to the sins corruptions and scandals of the times. See Acts of Assembly 16th, 17th, Anno 17.12, Act 6, 17.13, Act 8, 17.14, Act 6, 17.15. The Presbytery cannot also here omit observing, and that with deep regret, that although the most damnable principles, which have a direct tendency to deny the being of God, 
and so to propagate opinionative atheism, to subvert all religion, to extol the power of corrupt nature, and exalt popery as the best form of religion, to deny the subjection of the world to the providence of God, to destroy all distinction between virtue and vice, and consequently affirm that there is no moral evil in the world, and to ridicule Christianity as destitute of divine authority, have been lately vented by David Hume, Esquire, and another designated by the name of Sappho. Yet this church has passed no suitable censure upon the authors of the impious and blasphemous principles, though they justly deserve the very highest. Nor have they done anything to testify their dislike or put an effectual stop to the spreading of these abominable tenets. The Presbytery, therefore, as they declare their abhorrence of these and the other errors formerly mentioned, so testify against the Church's notorious unfaithfulness in suffering these wretches to pass with impunity, and as being on all these accounts noticed, unsound and corrupt in the matter of doctrine, etc. It may also be here remarked as an undoubted evidence of the corruptness of the state that although there are civil laws presently in being which declare the maintaining of anti-Trinitarian atheistical principles to be not only criminal but capital, yet the civil powers in the nation have not so much regard to God and the Son of God as to punish treason openly acted against them. Number six. The Presbytery testify against both church and state for their sinful associations with malignants, as declared enemies to the covenanted interest have engrossed the civil power wholly to their hands since the public resolutions that a door was open for their admission. So such is the nature of the laws presently extant and in force, that one cannot be admitted to any office, civil or military, but by swearing away all friendship to a covenanted reformation. And moreover, all along since the late revolution, the nations have been the most earnest pursuing after friendship with the grossest idolaters, and in express contradiction to the word of God, have confederated in the closest alliance with God's declared enemies abroad, nay, have exhausted their strength and substance in maintaining the quarrel of such as have been remarkable for their hatred at and persecution of the Protestant interest. The Revolution Church has also set a confederacy with such as have on all occasions showed a rooted enmity and hatred at Reformation principles, which appears from their admitting such, noticed above, to be office-bearers in the Church, from their obser observing fasts and praying for success to the Allied armies, though almost wholly composed of such, and many of them oftentimes gross, popish idolaters, from their going in with and approving of the sinful incorporating union with England, from their acknowledging the civil power of churchmen as lawful, from their joining in religious communion with Mr. Whitfield, and in many other instances. Not to insist further in enumerating particulars, the Presbytery finally testify against church and state for their negligence to suppress impiety, vice, and superstitious observance of holy days, etc. The civil powers herein acting directly contrary to the nature and perverting the very ends of the magistrate's office, which is to be custos et vindex ultrisque tabulae, 
the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath on him that doeth evil. Transgressors of the first table of the law may now sin openly with impunity. And while the religious observation of the Sabbath is not regarded, the superstitious observation of holy days, even in Scotland, is so much authorized that on some of them the most considerable courts of justice are discharged to sit. Stage plays, masquerades, balls, assemblies, and promiscuous dancing, the very nurseries of impiety and wickedness, are not only tolerated but even countenanced by law. And as these with other evils are permitted by the civil powers, so this church seems to have lost all zeal against sin. No suitable endeavors are used to prevent the growth of atheism, idolatry, and superstition. And though prelacy as well as popery is growing apace in the lands and organs publicly used in that superstitious, superstitious worship, yet no testimony is given against them, but new modes introduced into the worship of God for carnal ends as a gradual advance toward that superstition. Yea, so unconcerned about suppressing vice and extravagant vanity, etc., that not only are the forementioned nurseries of sin frequented by ministers' children, but ministers themselves have countenanced them by their presence, to the great scandal of their office, and manifest encouragement of these seminaries of immorality. And notwithstanding that, by the late proclamation, the penal laws against vice and profanity seem to be revived, which is in itself so far good, yet this cannot supersede or remove the ground of the Presbytery's testimony against church and state complexly, on the above account, or even against the thing itself, in the manner that it has gone about. For besides that, notwithstanding of all former endeavors of this kind, since the overthrow of our scriptural and covenanted reformation, immorality and wickedness have still increased and overflowed all these banks, partly because, after all their pretenses, pretenses, the laws were not vigorously put in execution. And, as good, no law nor penalty as no execution. And partly because these lawmakers, being also themselves the lawbreakers, have entrusted the execution to such as are generally ringleaders in a variety of gross immoralities. It is not likely that ever God will countenance and bless such attempts, whereby, contrary to Scripture in all good order, the ecclesiastical power is subjected to the civil, and ministers made the bare inspectors of men's manners and informers to inferior judges, without having it in their power to oblige such transgressors, if obstinate, to compare before church church judicatories and conform and submit to the laws of Christ's house. Nay, so far will God be from approving such Erastian methods of reformation that he will certainly visit for this, among all other iniquities, and in his own due time make a breach upon us, because we sought him not in due order. Wherefore, and for all these grounds, the Presbytery testify against both church and state as in their constitutions, Erastian and anti-scriptural, including the substitution and acknowledgement of another head and governor over the church than Christ, as may be sufficiently evident from proofs above adduced. And particularly because the British United Constitution is such as involves the whole land and all ranks therein in the dreadful guilt of idolatry, communicating with idolaters, apostasy, perjury, etc., they declare 
they can have no communion therewith. But that is such an association as that God's call to his people concerning it is, come out from among them, be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, saith the Lord. Supplement to part second. For as much as a good number of people in the north of Ireland have acceded and submitted themselves to the presbytery, and one of their number is fixed among them as their proper pastor, the presbytery intended to have subjoined something by way of appendix to the above testimony with relation to the state of religion in that kingdom, especially with regard to the settlement of the presbyterian religion there. But, as diocesan episcopacy is the religion there established by law, against which the presbytery has declared and testified, as above, as an anti-scriptural, anti-covenanted, and merely a human and political settlement, whether considered abstractly or complexly with that in the kingdom of Scotland, there needs nothing be further said anent it. And as those called Presbyterians in Ireland are equally enemies to the true covenanted Presbyterian cause with those of the Revolution Church of Scotland, so the above testimony equally strikes against them with the other. There seems, however, to be this considerable difference betwixt the Presbyterians in Scotland and Ireland, that although the settlement is the same as to the matter of it, yet so it is not as to the form or manner of it, the Presbyterians in Ireland neither having nor claiming any other security or foundation for their different mode of religious worship than the Royal Indulgence or Toleration Act. And therefore, as the Presbytery did and do testify against toleration and toleration principles, disclaiming such as an anti-scriptural shelter, they therein of consequence bear witness and testimony against all such as do in these lands, where God has given his people a claim of another kind, professedly dwell under such a shadow. But besides, the Presbytery view them, complexly considered, as unworthy of their regard or notice in these papers, as to engaging in any particular or explicit testimony against them, inasmuch as they have denuded themselves of almost any pretense to the Presbyterian name, by not only disclaiming and opposing the true Presbyterian cause, but having also fallen from the belief and profession of the most important and fundamental truths of Christianity, thereby plainly discovering themselves to be creatures of quite another species and spirit, than the ministers of Jesus Christ and friends to the blessed spiritual bridegroom, deserving rather to be termed a synagogue of libertines, a club of Socinians, Arians, Pelagians, etc., banded together against Christ and the doctrines of his cross than a synod of the ministers of the gospel. Therefore, as the presbytery testify and remonstrate against them, their toleration or indulgence footing on which they professedly stand together with their poisonous jumble and medley of errors, commonly called new light, adopted and with the greatest warmth and diligence spread and propagated by most of them, and connived at and tolerated by the rest, and all their books or prints written by them or others of the like spirit with them in defense of these dangerous and damnable tenants. So they do hereby judicially warn and exhort all the people under their inspection there to beware of such men and such books, however they may varnish over the doctrines they bring with fine words, fair speeches, and pretenses, in order to deceive the hearts of the simple. And this, as they would not incur the displeasure of a holy and jealous God and have their souls defiled and destroyed by these errors. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.